New York City. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And today on SVU, Matt and I will dive right into the meat of our discussion of a movie of rare quality. I can't believe you're making me read this. One that takes the film medium to new heights, and that is incredibly well done. That's right. We are discussing the new French horror film, Raw. Inspired by Raw, we were going to do a podcast all about cannibalism movies. Movies like Ravenous, Society, Trouble Every Day. But then we realized we did cannibalism on our very last episode, SVU number 148, which was tied to The Bad Batch. We have very short memories. We're basically the memento guy at this point. Yeah, uh, we, we can't even think back. Who are you? What am I doing here in this podcast room? <laughs> so instead, inspired by Raw's uh, vet school setting and its intense hazing rituals, we are traveling back to school to do a podcast all about the movies and television shows that are set at college. Because really, who better to talk about the college experience than two people in their middle 30s? How do you do, fellow kids? We are totally youthful and cool and hep to what all the dudes and dudettes are grooving to these days. Matt. Please stop. I agree. Let's head right into our review of Raw. Our main review on every episode of Film Spotting SVU is chosen by listeners via a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. And because it is Halloween season, we decided to give you a trio of recent horror movies to choose from. Soul Station, an animated zombie movie from Korea. Gerald's Game, a Netflix original based on the Stephen King novel about a woman who has to try to escape two pairs of handcuffs after her husband dies mid coitus let's say and finally we gave you also raw the french belgian horror film directed by julia do you know how to pronounce her last name allison or should i just I muddle my way through du corno du corno okay there you go it was a back and forth race all week between raw and gerald's game and actually for a while gerald's game was in the lead i thought it was going to win i actually watched it as well uh wow, if you want to yeah well i was actually i've been wanting to see it so i watched it it's pretty good uh but it wound up uh, losing to Raw, 50% to 45% of the vote. Raw played at Cannes Critics Week in 2016. It won a prize. It then played at the Toronto Film Festival last fall and the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. It arrives on Netflix with some of the best reviews of any horror film in recent years. Uh, the main character is named Justine. She is a, a new student at a veterinary school. Now, I have never been to veterinary school in America or in Europe, I must admit, but this place seems very intense to me. Uh, the hazing rituals, which involve carry style buckets of splattered blood, are designed to show the first-year students their place on the school's food chain, as it were. And speaking of food, one of those rituals involves eating raw 
was it rabbit kidney? Some uh, kind of rabbit kidney. Okay, yes. it's some kind of animal kidney, rabbit kidney. Something Justine, as a vegetarian, does not want to do. But her older sister, uh, who also goes to the vet school, pressures her into doing it. And not long after she has her first bite of organ meat, she finds herself gripped by an insatiable appetite for all kinds of meat. Rabbit kidney apparently is a gateway drug. And before long, she is eating actual humans. Allison, uh, my intro there ran down a long list of film festivals that this movie appeared at. Basically appeared at all the most prestigious film festivals in the world. So my question to you is, do you buy the hype or is Raw, and excuse me, is Raw deserving of all of that acclaim and festival endorsement? Well, I was lucky enough to get to see this at the first festival it played at, which was in Critics Week at Cannes last year. Now, Critics Week is one of the sidebar programs. It often shows a lot smaller films. Right. Um, so it's not necess- It's not like being playing in the Debussy Theater or like one of the big theaters where it's... Um, and I happened to see it. At one, it was not the first screening. It was at one of the farther theaters at Cannes. So I like walked half an hour. Uh, it was more locals there. Mm-hmm. And I have this really kind of fond memory of, uh, I think, around the time where the first act of cannibalism happens in this movie. I would say, I want to say like 20 to 30 people like rose as if previously agreed upon and walked out of the theater. They'd had enough. Yes. that was One like, bite of man meat and that was it. Too much. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I'm not, I didn't see this movie at first through this kind of wave of acclaim. Mm-hmm. I saw it pretty fresh. Right. And I genuinely loved it. Mm-hmm. I thought that it. It's not a conventional horror film in any way. And I do feel there's something I think very exhilarating about the ways in which it is half this movie about this really dark urge and then half this kind of strange coming of age movie that deals with college Mm -hmm. and this like giddy, like disorienting feeling of going away to college and those first weeks especially, but also about female desire and the ways in which... Uh, desire and hunger for flesh get tied up in very confusing ways in this I think are pretty wonderful Uh, I I think that it was just it was just the kind of movie that I was thrilled to see in that Mm -hmm. first sequence you know it just felt so kind of not following in any particular film's footsteps and it also felt very refreshingly female female from its point of view you know it's uh, Ducourneau's first film I think it it well, it definitely, I think you could draw parallels between that and maybe Trouble Every Day or something like that. It felt, I think, in its focus on this character and in this focus on this sibling relationship, uh, there was something about that that felt very kind of like a relief to me mm-hmm. just to see on screen. But what about you, Matt? You're seeing this now. Right. I'm seeing it just last week. Yes. From all made its way. Yes. Wound its way around the world. During hype. Yeah. It's it's reportedly made people faint in theaters. Yes. Yes. It's uh, and now it comes to your doorstep via streaming. What did you think? I liked it. I don't know if I liked it quite as much as you did. Maybe the hype has something to do with that. I don't I don't know. Um, But I I liked it a lot. I I thought that, um, you know, you mentioned the female perspective. I think that's part of what makes it special. Um, you know, coming-of-age stories and college stories, they're often very male-dominated, male-oriented. And I think that does, um, I think, make the movie unique. What The one part that I sort of struggled with and didn't particularly love was the, was the relationship with the sister. It felt, I loved it. See, I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. To me, that almost felt like a different movie. You know, I felt like the stuff about college, you know, it starts off so much about 
like you're saying, like the experience of the the disorientation and the exhilaration and also the terror that comes with com- going to going away to school. And I, I love those scenes. And some of the scenes with the sister are good too. They just felt a little bit out of place to me. They felt like they like she wanted to make two different movies, one about sibling rivalry or sibling relationships and one about going to college. And she tried to combine them. And I don't know that in that way she was entirely successful. That was the really the one aspect that I sort of struggled with. I think the performances are wonderful. I think it's a great looking movie. It's very well shot. I think DeCorno is a very talented filmmaker. I can't wait to see what she does next. And it is scary and disturbing and, tr- and troubling and sometimes hard to watch. I certainly didn't feel faint, but I definitely got grossed out on several occasions. Um, but yeah, just I kind of got hung up when so much of the movie was about the sisters, particularly in the second half. And then some of the stuff in the ending that connects to the sisters and sort of why they are so obsessed with meat, uh, 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 man, uh, man meat or human flesh, whatever you want to say. That to me felt a little, I don't know, a little silly or I don't, I just didn't need that, I guess. Uh, I sort of liked more of the, it was just this strange, inexplicable hunger for flesh. Whereas when the movie towards the end does kind of give you a bit of a concrete explanation of a kind, I, I, I was like, I didn't, I didn't need that. Yeah, I just, I, that didn't bother me because I just felt like it doesn't, it gives you so little explanation. It just kind of like puts it in this uh that that is something of a inheritance right that which i think you already see because obviously the sister does the same has the same urges right but i think that i think you know to the context of you're saying that a lot of college movies tend to be male oriented i think that that part of what i like so much about this movie is that it is so much of college is about being like freedom and like this giddy running wild and you get to drink and you get to have sex without having to sneak around your parents or whatever, you know, like you read to reinvent yourself as this new person. All of these things that like the kind of halfway towards adulthood feeling of college is supposed to represent. And then I love that you see this from these characters' perspectives, but in this way that is made to be dangerous, not because of threats, because they are the threat, right? That it is not because of outside threats that is, uh, it's because of what, they kind of this like kind of capacity that is inside them that they discover. And I I think that in that context, I I loved the sister relationship because it, I I love the way it balanced between being fond and then also that same urge to like haze someone and be like, keep up, try harder, Mm -hmm. you know, that it, it, it was not like a kind of protective relationship in that sense. Sometimes it was, it was occasionally, but like, it was just, it was that exact fraught thing of having someone be your sibling, but also be an, a lower classman. Right. Right. And that you want to be like, keep up, you know, party as hard as we do. Like this, these, this is the way it works. And I feel like in the ways in which, the movie tries to deal with what being asked to conform and to keep up, you know, means in the context of all of this hazing. I think that, I don't know that I, I thought that the sibling was like helpful in that, that, um, you know, she gave like a lot of complexity to that, that it wasn't just this girl dealing with her own problems and this own, like her own discovery of this hunger. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I mean, I, I don't, none of those scenes were bad. There's nothing wrong with those scenes. I just felt like, I mean, I honestly felt like it was two different movies. And like, I think Julia DuCorno is, is talented enough that I would like to see her sibling rivalry movie. Like, it, she could have made that her second movie. Make the, the coming of age veterinary school horror movie. And then make a totally, like, I feel like there, that, that 
they're just there's enough there that it could be its own thing and i i didn't really feel like those scenes necessarily added so much to the 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 scenes about the hazing and the just the general sort of disorientation of going to college or vet school or whatever it might be um all the stuff you're talking about i just again they're not bad scenes and they're very well acted and i thought that both of the sisters were terrific and uh i'm going to destroy her name but i think it's garance maybe marillier perhaps sure She's uh, Justine. She's incredible in yeah. this movie. Uh, she looks like more and more like Vulpine as the movie goes along. Yeah, she really has sort of a transformation, a very believable transformation as this woman who's you know uh, never eaten meat and and is sort of like uh, it takes it takes a hold of her and uh, has some really really good scenes throughout the movie. So it's not like I'm saying any of these parts were bad. I just I don't know. They felt a little. Uh, just disparate. They, I don't know. I, I, your argument isn't bad for why you like them, but I just, it did. They just didn't quite work together for me. They both work, but they don't really combine to say something together to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you think of the general uh, veterinary school as almost like? Lynchian dreamland? <laughs> it was terrifying. Uh, I like I said, I have no idea what. Any vet school anywhere in the world is like, but uh, I-, I can't imagine this movie being used as a great recruitment tool for that profession <laughs> uh, if uh, if veterinary school applications take a nosedive in the next 18 months. We'll, uh, we'll, have, uh, we'll know why. Uh, uh, now that it's on Netflix, anyone could see it, you know, and I have to think a lot of people are like, mm, I might become a vet. Oh, look, <laughs> this movie, Raw, is about a, a girl at veterinary school. Like, oh, my God. It has some very just like some of these bits of like the cow she walks into it late into class and there's a yeah, cow there's, getting an ultrasound yeah and it's yeah it's, and it's like not always the running on the treadmill mm-hmm. like yeah it's not even always the stuff that's like gory although there is some really troubling gory stuff in it there's too there's a dissection that yes. happens just kind of casually it's just awful <laughs> just absolutely terrible but it's some of those scenes where it's just like the normal what i have to assume are sort of more mundane tasks that the fact that they're clearly involving real animals like, don't they sedate a horse at one point? They do. For and some I, reason, I found that incredibly disturbing. There, there was a lot of. I mean, there's a scene where she goes to talk to her sister, and her sister is like, "Oh, has her arm deep yes. inside a cow." Yeah, it's and, like it's like a jackass sketch, right. but but by David Lynch. There's something about the casualness of it all that, yeah, like yeah, like the dissection, like this conversation happens over the dissection, and it's so done so matter of factly that you're just it makes it kind of more disturbing. Yeah, it's tremendous. Uh, yeah, I, all of the horror stuff in this movie uh, worked for me, right down to the scene of, I guess it's like a bikini wax, uh, yes. self, self, self-inflicted, self or I guess sisterly in- yeah. inflicted. Uh, the poor dog, Quickie, ends up, <laughs> Quickie ends up going down for a crime he did not commit. That scene felt very, I mean, Lynchian or nightmarish, almost Cronenbergian. It's also very funny at the same yeah, it's time. Almost like, it's like it's almost like a Farrelly Brothers scene. Yeah, it's like slapstick. I That... That sequence is the first instance of cannibalism right. in, and it's the ways in which it's done are both like so disturbing, but so kind of, that's actually, I think my favorite part of the sibling relationship is the look on the sister's face when she sees what's happening Right, is so kind of perfectly like genuinely betrayed, but also kind of like sibling betrayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just like the kind of dark humor that runs through a lot of this, I think is what makes it particularly satisfying. It, it definitely has a nice 
dark humor to it. That scene in particular is really funny and disgusting all at the same time. What did you think of the kind of, uh, you know, we have this idea of like this very kind of animalistic human hunger mm-hmm. and then these animals. And there's even that conversation that's had like early on. That's a very like freshman in college conversation about animals and like what, whether a monkey can be raped. Right. And, like, right. Whether, right. Yes. What did you think about this? movie? What this movie was trying to say about humans and animals? You know, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't know that I necessarily felt super strongly about this is the message of, of the movie. I, to me, it was just, uh, I felt it was just more a convenient place to set this and, and inject the sort of extra disorientation, disgustingness, body horror, you know, it's, a, 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 and to do things like have scenes where people are dissecting animals but having very mundane conversations. I mean, if you just set this at art school, it doesn't have the same oomph. I mean, it really is sort of an ingenious way to uh, to to inject extra grossness, extra scares, without going over the top, without, you know, they feel totally fitting for the subject matter. Um, so I guess I, I have to tell you, I did not get a strong, like, oh, this is what the movie is saying about human beings as animals or anything like that. I took it much more as a, a movie about, like, identity and the disorientation of going away to school and trying to figure out who you are as a person when you've been told, I'm a, I'm a, a vegetarian, I'm this, I'm that, I want to be a vet when I grow up because you've been told basically all these things and then trying to figure out for yourself and discovering, oh, there's some strange things about me that I never even realized and how sort of exhilarating and horrifying that can be all at once. Yeah, I don't feel like there's necessarily a message to draw from, like a, but, but I do feel like the movie makes a point out of saying that we are we are animals as well and that we have all kinds of desires and impulses that are not necessarily rational ones or not necessarily ones that you can rationally control right uh and i think that there is something about the ways in which it just allows the setting to kind of speak to that that i i appreciate especially as justine kind of spirals out into more and more extreme behavior she is there is like some really animalistic behavior that she indulges in this movie definitely has i think one of the more memorable sex scenes of the year oh yes certainly (laughs) it ends with this image that is like i think maybe the best image in the film of just like her biting her own arm that is like (laughs) pretty messed up (laughs) allison it is uh and i uh, i love it um what did you think of her relationship with her roommate she has a a gay male roommate right uh played by i raba naid ufala adrian um, and they have this kind of complicated, to say the least, yes. very collegiate, complicated relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that you nailed it. it. It feels very true to that age. And I know I, I think it fits perfectly with what I was just saying about this idea of at that age, your identi- identity is so sort of in flux. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you love, what you're interested in. And, you're, and you've been told who you are for so long. And now you have the chance to explore it. And so, yeah, you have this strange, uh, complicated relationship with your mostly gay roommate, or he's, he is gay, but he's... Uh, uh, still gets persuaded to yes. deflower her, at, yes. yes, in one instance. He's, he's, open, he's open to persuasion. Yeah, I, I thought it was, again, not, I just thought that all of that stuff was very well written, very sort of 
effective, well acted. The sex scene is incredibly disturbing, as you said. <laughs> that final image, I will never forget it. As long as I live, I'll be old and gray, and mm-hmm. uh, and I will definitely remember that that image you described. You know, I do think that uh, th- there is something about like also having her her roommate identify as gay and that like that so much of this is it it allows the the movie to even i think more focus on like so much of it is about female desire mm-hmm. you know like this is a very female gazy movie like the mm-hmm. parts in which i think it's like one of at least two movies this year in which including call me by your name in which a character gets a lust induced nosebleed and um just from watching someone and i think that there is something about that that I, I do appreciate because it's so kind of like careful to set its point of view inside like Justine's perspective mm. and um, to show her kind of like confusion, but also like her desire uh, and just to like let this this character who's uh, who's actually like kind of more certain of himself and like by far than this like virginal like younger girl who's mm-hmm. who's kind of new to college. Uh, I, I think I just appreciated the ways in which it depicts her like general awakening to uh, like being a grown up mm. in many ways, including mm. like handling drink like, drinking very poorly. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I definitely didn't like the movie quite as much as you, but I, I want to stress that I like this movie a lot and that, you know, in some ways it's like some of the problems that I had with her just like that it's ambitious and that I just didn't think all of those things that it tried were successful, but I give it credit for, for doing them, for trying them. And I mean, I think that Julia Ducourneau, I, w- I can't wait to see what she does next. I mean, I think it's, I think that's the other thing to remember is, is like, it's a first feature and as a first feature, you know, like a lot of first features, I don't think it's perfect, but it shows a huge amount of promise where, where you're, you're really excited to see whatever she does next. And uh, I know I will be very excited to see whatever it is. I don't know if she's working on something specifically right now, but whatever she does next, I'm going to see it. All right, one last question before we tie this up. As I've mentioned, this movie kind of got attention for making people faint. Right. It made people walk out of my screening. Yes, yes. Do you think its reputation as a a gross movie, is that overhyped? Is it kind of a misdirect or is it deserved? I think it's pretty deserved. I mean, like I said, it it has some a lot of gore, actual like gory scenes and, you know, cannibalism and things like that. But it also just has like actual animals and dissections and things like that where I think that's often where people are actually more disturbed. And I know sometimes I am myself than fantasy violence, fantasy gore, where, you know, you watch a movie like Evil Dead and it's so over the top, you know, it's gruesome and gross. But it's at a remove. You can distance yourself from it. You know, like scenes of like, um, yeah, of like veterinary school dissections or even examinations. It's like real stuff. There's a there's a tinge of reality to it that I think it makes it worse. You know, the 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 Exorcist, the famous, you know, people being afraid of the Exorcist. They're all, when the people cite the scary scene, they don't usually say, "Oh, the scene where she pukes or her head or whatever." It's the scene where she's has she goes into the doctor and like she gets tested and like blood splurts out. Like that's I. That's the scene that often gets people. It's not the scary devil stuff. It's like the it's like the realities of our bodies and the realities of of medical examinations. Like that's the stuff that scares people because they they relate to it or they can imagine themselves in those scenarios. So I think it's totally earned. I mean, fainting I think is extreme, but I mean, if you don't know what you're getting into, if you're seeing it at a film festival where you barely know what it's about, um, and you you you're, you you would otherwise maybe have avoided the movie. Then sure, I get it. Why not? Yeah. See, I didn't feel like this film was like 
I, uh, the first quality about it, I would not say, is its intense grossness. I feel like it is very imaginative with some of the things. And it is very maybe realistic with some of the ways in which flesh is consumed <laughs> um, and tears and is generally fleshy. But yeah. I will say, like, the scene that jumped out at me the most on viewing it again was one that was just kind of like a nightmare version of almost like anxiety which is the scene in which she throws up hair oh yeah and just like she's been nibbling on her hair out of anxiety yeah and then has a scene where she just pulls all of these globs of hair out of her mouth and then in a way that i think also speaks to this like college is this unsettling place where people do sometimes all kinds of self-destructive behavior walks out of the bathroom and this woman is like next to her is like very politely is like you know if you use your fingers you can bring up your food more easily and gives her basically bulimia advice um which is a very dark punchline yes um but yes raw that gives it a thumbs up. I give it a very enthusiastic thumbs up. You can see it on Netflix. All right, fellow kids, let us talk now about college. Uh, this is this is a funny... Actually, I didn't even think about this, is that there was a uh, event at, not for college, but grad school at uh, my, my old alma mater, NYU. It's the 50th anniversary this year of the Cinema Studies Department at NYU. So on Friday night, I was, I was at Tisch. Um, they had like a little reception. And then we afterwards, me and the two, uh, you know, uh, fellow alumni colleagues of mine from when I was there, we snuck upstairs to the old floor that we were on to wander around, which looks nothing like it did when we were there. But what I'm trying to say here, Allison, is I'm old. I'm very old. Uh, but I, we all. Uh, but I still, I still remember these years very strongly. It doesn't feel like 15 years since I was uh, in college, but apparently, according to the date, that is, that is true. Um, yeah, I don't know that we have anything specific to say in a general sense about college age movies or movies set at college. They're a pretty broad category. Yeah, it's a broad category. They're mostly, uh, lots of comedy in here. Yeah. Most people find college a ripe time, apparently, for comedy. Yes, both of my films, uh, well, I have one film and one TV show, both definitely comedies. Yeah, I don't know why that is. It doesn't seem like, uh, as good a place for for dark drama. I well, guess. I mean, I think there that's part of the reason that I think, as we said, like that's what makes Raw interesting is that it takes something that is often a comedy and it has comedy in it, but it 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 explores the disorientation and disturbingness and just how hard it can be. And I know personally, like freshman year of college, I did not have a good year. Even the first couple of months of uh, grad school were incredibly difficult for me, and I look back on that time in my life as one of the you know happiest times of my life but that it is very disturbing and disorienting and and so yeah it's it, it is uh nice to see something like raw that gets that gets that idea my my two th- picks here do not have that they're wonderful but they don't have any of that at all all right well one of mine actually kind of does so why don't okay, I, you I start with that, that first yes let's all go. right um for my first pick i wanted to make the perhaps bold move of um, defending Amy Heckerling's widely dismissed 2000 romantic comedy Loser, uh, which you can find streaming on Stars or it's available for rent. Loser, of course, stars Jason Biggs, maybe the the prime of Jason Biggs. It was yes. uh, in his heyday of being a, a guy in high school and college yes. uh, in the movies. Uh, and Mina Suvari. Uh, you know, Heckerling was coming off all of these, this 
two decades of like being really on fire. She uh, kicked off her career with a definitive, one of the definitive high school movies of the 80s and of all time, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She went on to the success of Look Who's Talking, which is pretty good, and Look Who's Talking 2, which was not pretty good, but both of which were big hits. Went on to another landmark hit in the 80s in 1995 with Clueless. And Loser was basically when everything started to kind of fall apart for her. It was a box office flop. And at 24% on Rotten Tomatoes, it was a critical flop as well. But I would like to argue it was actually ahead of its time, in particular, in looking at college at this huge class divider Mm. between people who can afford to treat it as a blissful playground of self-discovery and binge drinking and people for whom it's a massive economic hurdle. And certainly the latter is the case for the two main characters in Loser. The movie is set, though it never explicitly states it, at NYU. Uh, And Biggs plays this genuinely sweet working class kid from upstate New York who goes to school on a regent scholarship that requires him to maintain this high GPA. Suvari is a kind of gothy girl who lives at home outside the city and commutes in via train and tries to navigate this kind of nightmarish and I think for anyone who's actually tried to to deal with this fairly accurate uh, thing in which she tries to get more financial assistance and is told she has to emancipate herself from her parents to, to do that, which she can't do until she can prove she has an apartment, which she can't afford to get. Um, it is actually underneath the extremely 2000s music. Uh, Matt, I don't know if you remember the weedest song, Teenage Dirtbag, <laughs> features prominently. I, um, I have some recollection yes. of it. An extremely 2000s fashion, including a pork pie hat, which is the like the cool hat that Jason Biggs gets, as opposed to the one he is in before. Um, it is a pretty dark and fairly unforgiving portrait of college. Its two characters are totally broke. They are constantly getting taken advantage of, and they are just scrabbling to keep a toehold in the city. Biggs's character gets kicked out of his dorm by his douchebag roommates, played uh, now by a fairly recognizable group threesome, Thomas Sadowski, Zach Orth, and Jimmy, Jimmy Simpson, uh, most recently of Westworld. Uh, and he has to go live in a veterinary hospital, um, like in a back room filled with cages of animals, uh, an ongoing theme apparently in this ep- episode. Suvari works as a cocktail waitress at a strip club, which means that she keeps being in danger of missing the last train home and sometimes has to sleep in Grand Central. I've seen this movie described as a kind of revenge of the nerds riff, Mm -hmm. uh, which is baffling to me since the point of it is not social class, really, but economic class. Like the roommates are all, uh, you know, there to have a good time, a good undergrad time. And uh, the idea that both of these characters have to work really hard just to basically stay in school becomes this huge gap between them and most of the rest of the characters that they meet. Um, You know, they are basically two nice kids in a not particularly nice world, despite the kind of shiny uh, air of romantic comedy that this movie has. Uh, You know, and I I think that their romance is pretty sweet. I, I will say I don't love Suvari in a lot of the rest of this movie. She has this kind of petulance uh, mm-hmm. in terms of especially the this storyline that involves her affair with a professor played by Greg Kinnear at peak smarm but uh, it is it is about just being a nice person and and about nice gestures as ones that are not necessarily about giving people things but about being thoughtful and sharing your time uh, and I think that there is something about this as a as a portrait of being broke in New York 
Uh, and especially being broke in New York and being surrounded by people who have more money than you, that is very, very accurate. Uh, and I think that still, despite the w- some of the ways in which the cultural trappings of this movie have not aged well, that aspect has aged really well. Uh, it is definitely a film, I think, worth a second look. That is Loser. It is streaming on Stars, and it is available for rent. All right. I don't have uh, very fond memories of that movie, but you make a good case for it. Maybe I need to revisit that one. How, how do you feel about Vamps? You know, I never saw Vamps. Oh, okay. I, was, I just wanted to see how far the how far Amy I Heckerling... To, I don't know that I'm like a massive Amy Heckerling defender, yeah. but... Right. I'm just uh, curious. I did feel like this one was always a little uh, it's unfairly un- underrated. maligned. Yeah. All right. I'll have to check it out again. My first pick, I have to admit, is is really... I'm breaking our rules uh, on the podcast. You can't really find it right now. Uh, on streaming, at least legally, you can find it online. Um, but you can buy it on DVD. You can buy it new. You can also find it pretty inexpensive if you want to buy it on eBay, a used copy. But I kind of have to re- recommend it because to me, it is my favorite thing ever about college film or TV and really the most, uh, the closest to my own experience of college that I think I've certainly ever seen. It is the 2001 series from Judd Apatow, Undeclared. This was the show Apatow made right after Freaks and Geeks. And that show, of course, was about high school. This one is about college. But like Freaks and Geeks, it only lasted less than one season on network television. It was perennially poorly rated, but critically acclaimed. Unlike Freaks and Geeks, which I think has now gone on to have this huge cult reputation as this show that was so great and ahead of its time and launched all these careers. Uh, Undeclared doesn't hasn't quite attained that that status, uh, even though it it. it did have some very talented people involved in it at the starts of their careers as well. And it's a, it's a, a it's a great show. I was just rewatching some of the episodes today and it holds up so great. It is funny and just a really incredible time capsule of campus life in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands era. And uh, the core cast includes Jay Baruchel playing Matt Singer. Oh, excuse me. He plays Stephen Carp. <laughs> A shy dweeb with no social skills and no ability to talk to women who has no idea what he wants to do with his life and uh, is pining after another girl on the floor of his dorm. Uh, Lizzie, played by Carla Gallo, who has a boyfriend who is played mostly over the phone, but then again on screen in a couple of really excellent and incredibly uncomfortable guest appearances in the flesh by, do you remember, Allison? Jason Siegel. Oh, yes. Jason Siegel. One of his all time great roles is his role here, mostly on the phone. You don't see him for several episodes before you see him in the flesh, and he is just amazing in this show. The one uh, Freaks and Geeks regular who was a regular on this show was Seth Rogen. He also was a writer on the show as well. This was sort of really the, uh, the kind of birth of his career behind the camera, which is uh, pretty interesting. He plays Ron, he shares a suite with uh, Stephen and also Lloyd, who is a, he's sort of like the the anti-Stephen. He's very handsome, British drama student. Do you remember who plays Charlie him? Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam, that's right. Before he saved the world in Pacific Rim and also decided he had to appear in movies with a terrible American accent. Uh, guest actors throughout the run of the show include Amy Poehler, Busy Phillips, Jenna Fisher, Simon Helberg, Fred Willard, Mike White, and Adam Sandler as himself. And the directors on the show... Uh, pretty great, include Paul Feig, Jake Kasdan, Judd Apatow, Jay Chandrasekhar, and Greg Matola. And I again, I rewatched like six episodes today, and if I had had enough time, I would have watched the whole show again. It is, it's a really wonderful show. 
And, you know, it's not super heightened. It's, you know, I'm not, as much as I love a, of an, a, an animal house or one of those shows, you know, it really, the, the situations of this situation comedy uh, largely seem very much drawn from real college life, dealing with a roommate who keeps having sex and forcing you to sleep on the couch down the hall, uh, the pain and awkwardness of trying to maintain a long distance relationship or a, a high school relationship into college. Um, dealing with boring teachers, dealing with bad jobs, spiritual crises, uncomfortable visits from parents. You know, I, I joked that uh, Stephen was basically me in college, but really I recognize myself in a lot of these characters, a lot of their stories. I, I feel like they did a, a really nice job of creating all these characters who are very relatable, very recognizable, uh, except the smooth-talking, incredibly handsome British drama student. Screw that guy. I, I don't relate to him at all. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I have no idea whether because I am so old, whether this continues to bear any sort of uh, resemblance to college life now or to the truth of college now, probably doesn't. But if you want to know what college life was like in the early 2000s, I don't think you could do much better than this. And it is also really funny. It is undeclared. One of my favorites. Uh, Again, not streaming legally anywhere, but you can find it online. Or I recommend you buy the DVD which is available uh, online or you can get used copies on eBay. Uh, this have one of my favorite uses of the Mortal Kombat theme song. Yes, it, ever. it is a very, very good show. It, you know, Freaks and Geeks, not only does it have all those great actors and creators who went on to huge, to do th- huge things, it, you know, it has the edge of being sort of more melancholy and sweet and dramatic and serious. Whereas Undeclared, it's a sitcom. It's, you know, they're 22 minute episodes. They're not quite as th- rich that way. But it's a it's a really fun show, beautifully cast, great actors, um, a lot of nice supporting performances. I I I, I think it deserves uh, to be more widely seen. All right. Well, for my second pick, I went with a movie that probably is not widely seen at all. It is Who's Camus Anyway, which is currently streaming on Amazon. It's a Japanese film, 2005 film from Mitsuo Yanagimachi, who is a director of Godspeed, You Black Emperor. Um, this is his, this was his first film in 10 years. He hasn't actually done another since, but it is this sprawling Altman-esque ensemble film set on a college campus, and it is about film students the worst kind of students uh yes but it is about a group of students who are preparing to shoot a movie with their somewhat recently widowed professor who was once a famous filmmaker himself advising them and the movie is packed with references to other movies uh sometimes acknowledging them on screen including the long opening shot in which the camera at one point joins characters who talk about famous long opening shots including the ones in touch of evil and the player Um, So it is a movie about cinephilia, but it is also a movie about the ways in which art both like can reflect how we feel and sometimes uh, seem to shape how we feel in ways that can be both like self-serious and funny and also genuine. And there's something about that that feels very much like college to me when maybe you have like your first real experiences with like taking art and film and books that seriously. You know, it has that fresh closeness that let's say, can lead a 20-year-old to read Kerouac and then start wearing black turtlenecks all the time and to briefly fantasize about joining joining the Merchant Marines, something I personally did not do, but definitely some guys that I dated did may have. Um, anyway, it feels like a very collegiate kind of thing. And that is the essence of that relationship with art is something that is captured very well in this movie. Um, the movie juxtaposes 
art and kind of like cinephilia against all of the personal and and collegial dramas of these characters. Um, The student director, Naoki, uh, is kind of a ladies man. And he has this former, maybe current girlfriend named Yukari, whose obsessive love for him leads everyone to kind of jokingly nickname her Adele after Truffaut's The Story of Adele H, about, you know, a young woman who obsessively follows this man around um, to ruin, in fact, and then the professor himself has these feelings of loneliness and romanticizes this beautiful young student he sees that leads him to kind of embrace the comparison he gets to the main character in Death in Venice, um, except it kind of ends on a punchline instead of tra- grand, tragic, you know, uh, feelings. Uh, and then there's the film production itself, which we often see through the eyes of Kyoko, who uh, gets stuck with... Uh, and this is always the worst the worst job to have in a film production, I'm sure. Uh, the job of having to be the most sensible and organized person on the team. Uh, she also finds herself contending with three possible suitors, none of whom are her boyfriend, who's away for the week, uh, and all of whom kind of make passes, including, very memorably, one of them who makes a mime-style pass because he is in mime class when she passes him by. Mime class. <laughs> um, it is, I mean, I think that one of the things that's great about it is that it is set on a college campus that is constantly, in a very like recognizable way, like throbbing with life. You know, it has, people are constantly like spilling out, hanging out in cafes, uh, various clubs are doing various activities or or protests or, you know, like uh, things that it just seems like a very accurate portrayal of a college campus in which everyone is always kind of out and living their lives in in the open. Um, and I think so like, in addition to to all of those feelings, I think uh, one of the ways it's another way that who's Camus anyway gets college right, you know, both in those both in its feelings of falling headlong into movie love for the first time or mm-hmm. dealing with very confusing possible IRL love. Um, it also gets that woozy kind of camaraderie that comes from being on deadline for something in college and staying up all night and running yourself totally ragged, but having the sense of like wild possibilities being open to you uh, right up until they shoot the movie, which frankly I think turns out surprisingly good looking, not plausible for a student movie. Mm. Only the only part is not plausible. Um that is Who's Camus anyway, and you can find it on Amazon and I recommend you do. It sounds really good. I've never seen that movie. I got to check that one out. Sounds right up my alley. Uh unlike Undeclared, my second pick in no way resembles my own experience of college and that is totally okay. It is Everybody Wants Some, directed by Richard Linklater. It is available now on Hulu or Amazon. You can watch it on either one. Uh, This was billed as Linklater's spiritual sequel to his classic high school movie, Dazed and Confused. It doesn't feature any of the same characters, but it is set at college around the same time period, shortly after uh, Dazed and Confused, in a house populated by the members of a college baseball team. And... You know, the interesting thing I think about Everybody Wants Some is that personally, I feel like the primary pleasure in a Linklater movie is you just love spending time with the characters. You know, they're great hangout movies. You want to hang out with these people. You want to spend time with them. Uh, But the guys in Everybody Wants Some only really care about and only really want to talk about partying and getting laid. And their behavior is, you know, they're like frat boys, basically, and they're kind of mean, and their conversations are crash and crass, excuse me. And, you know, in the early sequences, 
you know, it's not a super pleasant group of guys to hang around. And at first, you know, when they tell you, oh, this is a spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused, it doesn't really feel that way because the characters are are different and they're not sort of so varied as they are in Dazed and Confused. It's like Dazed and Confused if everyone was Ben Affleck, kind of. And then this interesting thing happens, which is that as the movie goes on, the characters kind of deepen. We get to know them more. Our opinions of them start to evolve. And these guys that at first just seem like a bunch of dumb jocks, they reveal themselves to be this collection of very quirky, hilarious, link Laturian individuals. And I think that that was sort of like the ingenious construction of this movie. You know, everybody wants some is kind of like Raw. It's about hazing in some ways. It is about the older guys on this team uh, hazing the new guys and uh, testing them as they get acclimated to school and to the team. You know, they don't make them eat raw meat, as I, I don't think. I don't remember that. It's it a little... It doesn't sound actually that off... off uh, it doesn't seem unplausible do. that they yeah. might have. Yes. Um, and so, you know, there's a similar structure there to Raw. And it's like in making this movie about a baseball team hazing its new members... It almost feels like Linklater made a movie that's like almost hazing the audience. The early scenes test you. And if you can get past them, if you survive the initiation, as it were, then eventually you feel like you are a part of the team and you don't want to leave and you want to just keep spending time with these guys. And when it's over, you're kind of bummed. And uh, it is a great cast, too, sort of like Undeclared. You do have a, a bunch of talented young people in it that I think some of them have already gone on to headline other movies or do bigger things already. Uh, Zoe Deutsch is the key female character. She starred in Before I Fall. She's been in a bunch of things. Uh, Tyler Hoechlin is, is Superman on Supergirl now. He's really good in it. Uh, Wyatt Russell has been in Black Mirror. He was co-starred in Ingrid Goes West. Glenn Powell was in Hidden Figures. So yeah, I it, it, it you know I don't think it's as it's not as accessible as some Linklater movies. I think because the guys are a little off-putting in there obnoxiousness in the beginning but it is a movie that i've really warmed to and really like a lot and i do recommend people check it out so that is everybody wants some and it is available now on amazon or hulu a woman vanished last night we just found the body prince and the head is missing. All right, before we get to Behind the Eight Ball, let's talk about, uh, well, at least one new movie, a huge, major film of the fall. Yes. Really, the, the only, biggest movie. The only movie worth talking about. Yes. The one that everyone is, everyone is talking is about it. Absolutely not rushing to see. They're seeing it. Box office returns are. <laughs> they're going back to see it again and again. And We're that, talking, of course about the snowman about mr police mr police aka the snowman we gave you all the clues we gave you all the clues of what we were talking about because it's a huge box office smash yes <laughs> i think one of the things i really enjoy about this movie is i don't believe that we gave you all the clues no. is in the movie no if you haven't seen the the posters for this movie which are all over new york city i don't know if they're as ubiquitous around the country but in new york city every subway station every billboard everything says the snowman right now and they're these crudely drawn uh they look like handwritten notes from the serial killer to the main character of the movie one of them at least is in the movie where it's signed you know it's like dear mr police uh you know yada 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 and on the posters they all say like dear mr police you could have saved her i gave you all the clues and then it's signed with a little snowman 
And that letter does not appear in the movie. No. The bad guy, uh, he does leave snowmen everywhere, but he does not give the detective any clues necessarily. No. He, does not he certainly even... isn't like taunting him. No. The, the trailer, which also ends on an image that is not in the movie. Not at all. Uh, implies that the the killer spends a lot of time like communicating and maybe leaving him messages. Yeah, even, like talking like, to him on the phone, phone or leaving him messages. No, that doesn't really happen. Never in happens movie. in the movie no, at all, really. No. no. Uh, <laughs> not at all. One of the, the like of the many fascinating things about this movie, which Tom uh, director Thomas Alfredson, a good director, director of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and let the right, let one, the right in. one in, yeah, uh, has confessed in one of the weirdest moves. But I guess a way to distance yourself from your work that you, you know if you know it's bad, yeah. That he only, he did not have time to shoot all of the scripts right. in Norway. That's what he claimed. He he claimed that I I've seen people say the numbers ten to fifteen percent did not get filmed. I yeah. didn't see that in the quotes, but like maybe it was in the video interview. Yeah, but which is like a pretty sizable chunk of your convoluted mystery script. Yes. And that when he went back to try and piece it together in the editing room, <laughs> he it was like a jigsaw puzzle yes. in which pieces were missing. This is, yes, this is what he supposedly said and has been yes. sort of uh, widely disseminated on the internet. And yet there is also like at least a few significant scenes in the trailer that are not, that are in, not the movie. in the movie. Yes. So they shot stuff that wasn't that even in the cut, finished cut. But there are important connecting details that are not, that are missing, that were yes. never shot. A yeah. fascinating. All I want is really like a kind of um, documentary about the making yes, of. Yes, like a maybe uh, oral history of the making of. There's no company. way that would be less interesting than the movie. Partly because the movie is so incredibly horrible. It's just inept. Which I think yes. like I, it's hard to talk about this movie and not make it sound kind of like a gleefully fun movie. Yeah. but it's not really. It's not fun it's at all. It's not. It's both slow moving, but also very hard to follow because. It's lacking connective tissue. Yeah, the mystery doesn't make any sense, and it's not particularly interesting, and the actors are are incredible actors. Yes. Michael Fassbender, Rebecca Ferguson, Charlotte Gainsbourg, and J.K. Simmons, and yeah. it's a great cast, good director, and uh, supposedly based on a best-selling books, you know, that this character that Fassbender play, is playing is a, is a detective, and he has been in a million books. Now, his name in the movie is Harry Hole. That doesn't help. No, it doesn't help. And which also oh. baffling, it, like when you look up how someone, you can look up an interview in which uh, the the author of these books, who is Norwegian, yeah. pronounces the name the way you wouldn't in Norway, which, which is, is something Hul? like Harry Hula. Okay. Hula. Okay. You know, and like, that's not, I don't right. know why they choose not to say it that way in the movie. They do not. Which is set in Norway. <laughs> right. They call him, everyone Harry says Hull. Harry Hole. And they, and not only do they say it, you know, it'd be one thing if it, that someone said it one time in the movie. Yeah. They say it over and over again. The great People, Harry Hole. Well, 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 <laughs> the great Harry Hole. That's how his boss talks to him. It's like, we're going to definitely make this sound a lot more fun than it is. <laughs> but that's just one of the many, many, many baffling choices in this movie. I also, I really like that there's a side story about... The computer? The Well, the computer is great. Like, they they, spe they spend a lot of time setting there's up... There's scenes introducing this computer. Yes, okay, so let me scenes. explain this yes. very quickly. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, so, no. So, basically, the third most important character in this movie is a, like, a sort of like a laptop. Yes. A crime laptop. That that Rebecca Ferguson's character, who is like a new member of the police force, is partnered with Harry Hole. Uh, she carries it around everywhere. And there literally is a scene where a woman is giving a seminar on this device. It looks like it's like the size of like, like a, a briefcase, a briefcase or yeah. a cafeteria tray that's thicker, like a thick cafeteria yes. tray. She carries it over her shoulder with a strap and it has a thumbprint an analyzer yeah. and it has a screen it can take pictures it can record audio and it's like 
Do they not have iPads in Norway? Right. Yeah, it's never clear what time this is set in. It seems to be present day as much as we're ever shown. Yeah. But then also, they, it puts it makes poor Rebecca Ferguson have a scene where she tries to hide this hide thing. It yes. to she's spy like on someone. She's and like doing a so sting. Giant. She's got a suspect, and so she's trying to record this altercation with this suspect. She hides this gigantic brick. She literally has to toss an entire bookshelf worth of books on the ground, <laughs> and then she's, makes no attempt to, to cover it up. And it's this giant uh, giant gray obelisk i know and oh, it's, it's just so, so silly i also really liked uh uh harry hole's relationship with his ex-girlfriend's son oh, makes, oleg yes who he, who he only disappoints <laughs> again and again today. oleg like doesn't get to speak at all Never. he just he just gets stood up by harry hole repeatedly <laughs> and then kind of disappointedly slumps away like yeah. charlie brown was that what you were gonna say i interrupted yes, you about no, that was that was it. I just, okay, like good. i just i enjoyed that attempt at having personal drama so much because it was so weirdly done like it, so many other parts it of is movie. really baffling it really really is it, it, it it's not it's it is boring and the thing is it's it's edited or i guess co-edited by thelma schoonmaker oh yeah that's the thing it's like it, it is a poorly constructed this... movie yes whereas like you go oh thelma you see in the opening credits thelma schoonmaker like wow thelma schoonmaker one of the greatest editors of my generation of my lifetime ever many generations she edited this well at least it'll be well 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 constructed it is not it is poorly constructed it is baffling it yes there are flashbacks yes. that are hard to discern from the contemporary scenes right they involve val kilmer not Ooh. looking well no and seemingly dubbed over he's definitely dubbed by another person yes and they try and hide it very awkwardly he spe- spends most of his lines with not his back facing, to the camera yes. or in there's a whole scene elaborate scene in which it's cut so that he doesn't have to speak which makes no sense right because the scene really demands that he have a conversation with someone yes. uh yes that bewildering very strange uh chloe Sevigny shows up for like five minutes yep in which she's it promptly murdered and then shows up again because twist she's playing Spoiler twins alert, she's twins <laughs> twin magic uh yeah jk simmons is in like three scenes he everyone, unnecessary totally to, a superfluous yeah. he has this whole subplot involving like they don't call it the olympics but he's trying to get the winter games in norway has absolutely no relevance to the rest of the story. I have no idea. Maybe it, maybe in the book it did. Maybe at one cut it did. But there's no reason for that to matter at all. There's no reason for him to be in it other than to be like a, a blatant red herring. Yeah. He uses a very thick Scandinavian accent, even though most of the other people in the cast are sort of talking like they're from England. They have British accents yeah, or so flat accents. They just speak in like this kind of clipped way. Yeah, it's very, very strange. It is. It is a... It is a baffling movie. Yes. And yes, all I want is a behind the scenes yeah so two thumbs up is what we're saying go see it greatest film of the year yeah yeah totally so that is the snowman uh you didn't see geostorm i did not geostorm is slightly more fun than the snowman but equally as baffling and strange fascinating the last 15 minutes are super fun yeah the first hour and 10 minutes of the movie is like people standing around looking at computers and having long dialogue scenes and having video conferences in space what I really enjoyed just reading about Geostorm was that they apparently put 15 million extra dollars into reshoots. Well, it's um, all up there on the screen, Allison. <laughs> uh, yes. I don't know. Quite a week for cinema is what yes. we're saying. Yes. It's a great time for the, for the film industry. Uh, hopefully next week will be better. All right. Well, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball. This is where we wrap up the show by giving you some new releases that are 
newly available on various streaming sites. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we want to mention, we could use some new listener recommendations. Definitely send some of them in. If you've been watching something lately that you're enjoying, we want to know about it. We want to read it on the podcast. Yeah, we had a huge backlog that we have mostly used up. So please send us some recommendations. We need them. svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And then one film that we each choose blindly by number from each other's my lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going first. All right. Well, let's start with three new releases. Okay. First up, new to Fandor is A Touch of Sin, Jajanka's sprawling 2013 drama, tying together four stories set in various parts of China, all dealing with acts of violence. Um, new to Netflix is season one of Mindhunter. Matt, have you watched any of Mindhunter yet? Mindhunter on Netflix? Not no. yet. Uh, this would be the series uh, based on the book of the same name by John E. Douglas, who's one of the first criminal profilers, produced by Charlize Theron and David Fincher, who directed the first two episodes. And weirdly, I will say, I think the first two episodes are some of the worst, <laughs> um, though he does set the kind of look of the series, which goes on. I've watched the whole thing and I still don't know what I think of it, uh, though I think uh -oh. it has some like very... It's very processy. It's kind of it does have touches of Zodiac to it in terms mm -hmm. of uh, what it's like, but I don't how, know. How many episodes? Uh, ten. Okay. So I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe one to discuss later someday. All right. Uh, and finally, new to Amazon is a quiet passion. One of the best films of the year, I will movie. go ahead and say, yes. though no one probably will ever believe you. No. Uh, this is Terrence Davies. But believe us. Yes, 2016 biopic uh, starring Cynthia Nixon as poet Emily Dickinson. And it is really, maybe, if, if you have to give it a little patience, it might seem a little stiff at first, but it is like a truly exceptional movie and not your standard biopic in, in really thematically at all. And it's hilarious. And it is. It's pretty funny. Yeah. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. First up, we have one from Casper Kelly, who writes, hello, long-term listener, first-time emailer. Also, I did too many cooks and was very flattered when you gave me a shout out. I'd like to recommend the movie The Devil and Miss Jones, mm. a wonderful 40s comedy in the Preston Surgis style, but not by him, which is basically a 40s version of Undercover Boss. A stodgy mogul goes undercover as a lowly employee to root out union organizers and gets won over by them. The first scene is weirdly slow, but after that, it's just pure delightful whipped cream with fantastic comic set pieces, but with a political bent as well. Stars James Coburn and Gina Arthur, who were in The More the as featured in Five Came Back, which got me on this whole 40s comedy kick to begin with, is streaming on Filmstruck and not to be confused with the porn film Devil in Miss Jones, oh. possibly the only porn movie more famous than the film it is parody. <laughs> uh, keep up the good work. Thank you for that, Casper. And uh, that's, great. that's a great recommendation. And we've got one from Marsha, who writes that her wife, Liz, recommends Yord Scott. This is a Swedish language show, season one of which is on Shudder. She describes it as a supernatural nature thriller, a bizarre combination, but it makes sense when watching. It is a female detective-led mystery where the forest is a character in its own rights. And thank you for the excellent podcast. And Marsha writes, I'll try and send in a wreck of my own soon, but my wife watches much more than I do. Thank you for that, Marsha. That's actually a show that I keep eyeing on Shudder, and it sounds very interesting and have yet to get to try it. Mm. So... I will try and check that out soon, too. Yord Scott with a J on Shudder. All right. And how about one film chosen finally by number from your my list? Uh, you give me number two. Number two is, Matt. I'm ready. 
Cube Zero. Oh, God. <laughs> Actually, all three cubes <laughs> are on Netflix. The Trill? Including my personal favorite, Cube 2, Hypercube. Hypercube? I don't care what you have to say, Matt. The cubes are definitely my favorite Canadian math-based sci-fi <laughs> horror franchise. I mean, I guess it's the best of the, that... <laughs> That massive subgenre. Yeah, um, Cube Zero. I actually add, added all three cubes to my my list because well, it's been sure. a while. But Cube Zero is, of course, as you know, the third I, film no? in the franchise, okay. but also a prequel of sorts. Right. The first one. Right. It shows some of the outer workings of the cube, inclu- as well as the inner workings of the cube. What are? I mean, I guess we don't want to spoil, but I'd I'm be like a ruin that for I you. I want to know about the like, outer workings. You want me to go into cube mythology? Yeah. Where to start? Mm. Anyway, Matt, are you ready? I no, I'm not. <laughs> ready because i'm just i'm just uh, processing what you just said i never saw a cube to hypercube is it really a hypercube i love hypercube why <laughs> i love hypercube i think that should be your twitter bio i love hypercube I've not like I've made a secret of it. What what makes it so hyper? I can't even. We'll have to devote a whole podcast to that. Why didn't they just call it like rectangular prism? No, it's a hypercube. Oh, God damn it, Matt. I'm sorry. Matt, are you ready? All right. Three new releases. Oh, all right. My first recommendation is Cube. No, just kidding. Uh, first up on Hulu is The Rocketeer, the 1991 adventure film based on the indie comic by Dave Stevens and inspired by the adventure serials of the 1930s. It's about a stunt pilot who gets his hands on an experimental jetpack and uses it to become a hero, the Rocketeer. The film, directed by future Captain America, the first Avenger filmmaker Joe Johnston, is sweet and innocent and fun from a time before comic book movies were the dominant force in popular culture. Uh, The movie was not a big hit, but has slowly over time accrued a cult following, very deservingly so. It's a wonderful popcorn film. Uh, If you have never seen The Rocketeer, or you haven't seen it since you were a kid, I had not seen it since I was a kid and rewatched it not too long ago and thought, boy, this movie really does hold up. It's a lot of fun. It is The Rocketeer. It is on Hulu. And next up, uh, also on Hulu, a documentary just came out. I haven't heard anything about this. It is so up my alley. I can't believe it that it's just sort of like, I mean, the way it's just appeared out of nowhere and I had no inkling that it existed. It's very Netflix in that way. But it's on Hulu. It is Too Funny to Fail, the Dana Carvey show. It's a documentary about the doomed ABC sketch comedy series starring Dana Carvey, who at the time was one of the biggest uh, comedy stars in Hollywood. He was coming off his hugely successful run on Saturday Night Live and being in movies like Wayne's World. Uh, But despite Dana Carvey's presence... Despite a writer's room that included Robert Smigel, Louis C.K., and Charlie freaking yep. Kaufman, yep. being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind writer, Charlie Kaufman worked on this show. The show was a massive flop. It lasted just a handful of episodes before it was canceled. And this documentary includes interviews with many of the creators and the actors. And if you have not seen the Dana Carvey show... Good news. That's my third recommendation. Hulu has the entire run of the Dana Carvey show to go along with it. So you can watch the delightful sketch where Dana Carvey plays President Bill Clinton with numerous dog-like nipples and then attempts to feed puppies. Still can't understand why the show was canceled, but now you can watch it all and watch this documentary. I'm going to watch it tonight. I am like so excited about this. I've no, I, I don't know how I missed this happening, <laughs> how it just came out so quietly. But it's called Too Funny to Fail, The Dana Carvey Show. And that, along with The Dana Carvey Show, are both available on Hulu. 
All right. Uh, give me two listener recommendations. Okay. First up, we have a recommendation from Cameron. Cameron writes, just wanted to let you and your listeners know that if they want to know a bit more about the real life of Professor Marston and his Wonder Women, they can check out the episode titled Imagining Wonder Woman from the podcast Imaginary Worlds. It's a nice, informative piece about the real people behind the creation of Wonder Woman. Also, I recommend Imaginary Worlds as a podcast to listen to on a regular basis because it looks at interesting stuff in an interesting way. It is my second favorite podcast after yours, of course. Of course. Cameron, of course. Uh, If you want to listen, the website address for the show is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. Thank you for that recommendation, Cameron. Our next recommendation comes from Jason in O'Fallon, Missouri. Jason writes, I have been a longtime fan of the Ray Bradbury Theater and was pleasantly surprised to hear Matt recommend the show. The episode he singled out, Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl, is one of my personal favorites. The episode I would like to recommend is called Banshee. In this episode, an eccentric film director played by Peter O'Toole tries to frighten a young writer Charles Martin Smith with the story that a banshee haunts the woods surrounding his Irish country estate. What makes this tale stand out is the fact that it is based upon an actual incident from Ray Bradbury's life. In 1953, Ray spent six months in Ireland writing for John Huston, uh, the screenplay for Moby Dick. Bradbury and Huston had a very unpleasant working relationship. Apparently, Huston would manipulate and torment Bradbury with insults and pranks and attempt to frighten him with ghost stories. Later, Bradbury wrote the story Banshee and took a bit of literary revenge upon his tormentor. The film version of the story is quite good, with Peter O'Toole giving a very entertaining performance as the director. Anyone looking for a ghost story to enjoy during the Halloween season should check it out. So that is uh, the episode Banshee of the Ray Bradbury Theater. That was on Amazon Prime. That's where I found it. And so that was a recommendation from Jason. Thank you, Jason. I'm going to check that one out. I did not watch that episode of the show, but it sounds very interesting. Okay. Give me one from your Netflix My List. Mm, You gave me number 12, and number 12 on my 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 List right now is House of Cards. And uh, my wife and I enjoyed the first four seasons of this show about Kevin Spacey as a cunning Machiavellian politician, Robin Wright as his equally... Uh, sinister and manipulative wife. But for some reason this year, Allison, when the fifth season came out, we just weren't in the mood to watch a show about an evil president who abused his power and tried to destroy his enemies. I can't figure out why. I don't know why. I can't imagine. No idea why, but we haven't gotten around to watching the fifth season. And so that is why it is still hanging around my my list on Netflix. Now, here's the situation. Yes. We don't have listener's choice options for our next episode because... I will not be here on the next episode because my wife, at some point in the next couple of weeks, is having a baby. Uh, We don't know when. That's not how these things work. As I am told, uh, (laughs) as is my understanding of the reproductive system, but it should be within the next couple of days to a week. So I will not be available to do our next episode. So we are going to let our guest host, which we are not ready to announce yet, for that next episode with Allison, we'll let them decide along with Allison what the it'll be a host's choice review on that yes. episode could be a show could be maybe it'll be cube to hypercube I don't know uh, I if, hope if, so. if Allison has a say it might be yes maybe it'll be cube I'll maybe, insist it'll, be, on it, really. maybe it'll be the whole cubology we don't know <laughs> you, you'll have to tune in and find out but we do not have listeners choice options for our next episode uh, I will 
possibly be back. But the episode after that might be two episodes or so. Last time with Kid Numero Uno, whatever her name is, it, it was uh, two episodes that I was out. So I'll be gone for at least one, maybe two episodes. Allison will be holding down the fort uh, with uh, some some very exciting co-hosts. We had some great co-hosts, guest hosts last time. I'm sure we will have more great guest hosts next time. But uh, yes, no listener's choice options to choose from. But please keep sending us your listener recommendations. SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Definitely want to hear what you guys are watching right now. Yes, and always uh, remember to follow us on Twitter at filmspottingsvu.com. That is where we will announce uh, what we'll be talking about on these special guest episodes and who those special guests will be uh, on the next episode, which will be coming out on Tuesday, November 7th. Uh, And Film Spotting SVU is, of course, where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we discuss in the episodes. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and a review our special guest picks. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore and Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. Uh, we share plenty of streaming suggestions throughout the weeks in between episodes of things that are new to all kinds of platforms. So you'll want to give us a follow on there. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.